Today we bring you a special 1001 Heroes interview with Robin Hutton, author of War Animals, the Unsung Heroes of World War II. I found this to be a fun historical read, absolutely great. Um, hi, Robin. Welcome to 1001 Heroes podcast. How are you doing today? Good, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk to you about my new book, uh, on war animals, these these great heroes that served during World War II. So, thank you. You bet. Well, this really opened my eyes. I had no idea uh, that we made such great use of, of of not only our four-footed friends but others as well, both both furry and winged. And Indeed. I was I was amazed at some of your stories. Hope we can cover some of them today. I know our listeners are going to love it. And I'm also going to I can't tell them everything because we want them to go to the book. But we'll certainly yeah. we're hopefully hopefully we'll get some great stuff out there today. I'd That'd like to like to open by having you tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to write this book. Okie doke. Well, most of my background over the years, early years, were. Um, was spent in the motion picture business. You're too young to probably remember these movies, but I worked for the people that made the Billy Jack films from the 70s. And Billy Jack was the great iconic uh, hero who um, back in the 70s, he it really became a huge, huge film. And so I worked for he and his wife, Dolores Taylor, for a lot of years, <laughs> let's just put it that way. And uh, uh, I started, was working on his books and his scripts and stuff, and in 2006, I discovered a story on a great hero named Sergeant Reckless, the Korean war horse, and uh, Sergeant Reckless was just this amazing uh, horse who had disappeared from the pages of history. So I wrote her book, and I've now dedicated three monuments to this incredible war horse, and so uh, we also received a medal for her called the PDSA Dickon Medal. And this medal is a British medal. It's known as the Victoria Cross for Animals. And when I went over to England to get this medal for Reckless back in 2016, um, my publisher said, you know, there are a lot of great stories of animals that have received this medal. You know, what do you think about writing a book about them? And I said, I'd do it in a heartbeat because these Animals, as you know, are just amazing, absolutely amazing. So that started the uh, journey into the wonderful uh, world of World War II animal heroes, the war birds, the war dogs, war horses, and even a war cat. So it's, uh, it's, just, uh, it's just been a wonderful ride for the last two years. The, I, the first chapter hooked me, uh, Lassie Goes to War. Um, <laughs> And I'd love, it's a great title. I'd like you to explain to our listeners uh, how the U.S., how our country was inspired to use dogs. Was it an easy transition or was it, was it tough? How did that all begin and how did that work out? You know, John, it's a f I did not know this. And this is what I think is so fascinating. But during World War II, when it started, we did not have a war dog program. And so when Pearl Harbor hit a poodle breeder named Arlene Erlanger, a poodle breeder, said, you know, we got to get the dogs into this. They need to protect us at home on our coastlines and stuff. And so she gathered a bunch of her dog enthusiasts um, and uh, they put together Dogs for Defense. 
And people donated their personal pets to the cause. Now, these are greater patriots than, than me because there's no way you're taking my Misty to war. You know, I'm sorry. I just I just couldn't do that. It's a great threat to get them to behave at home, though, you know. Indeed, right. <laughs> so, you know, over 40,000 animals were donated to the cause. Now, not all of them made the cut, of course, but people stepped up and donated their own dogs to the uh, to the cause and it's just amazing they were trained in the army at first it took a while for dogs for defense to um, convince the army that this was a good thing but after a couple of incidences happened uh, the army stepped up and said you know what Let, let's give this a shot and so they took over the training and um, dogs for defense kept on recruiting the dogs and um, they turned it over to the army um, I think in 44 and so it's just an amazing thing but over 10,425 dogs were trained to and went into either battle overseas in Europe uh, or uh, the Pacific and uh, but mostly on our home fronts uh, guarding the am ammunition plants and the airports and um, things like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we had a lot of facilities that we needed to keep secure, and what better way to do it than dogs? Uh, oh, ab absolutely. And there was an event that happened in June of 43. It's called Operation Pastorius. And eight German spies were dropped off on our coastline from a submarine. Uh, four were up in, uh, I never can say this word right, Amaganasset, New York. Amagansett. And thank you, Amagansett, <laughs> New York. Four were dropped off there, and then four were dropped off in Florida. They had $170,000 with them to and, and enough explosives and everything to create havoc in the United States for over a year. And their mission was to bomb like Alcoa or the dams or, you know, different things to just really um, uh, upset uh, our way of life. And um, it, it was just amazing. And it was the largest manhunt in history at the time, and these guys were rounded up thanks to a Coast Guard um, uh, sailor who found them, the first four, on the coastline the, the night they landed. And within two weeks, I think it was, they were all captured, and within two months, they were uh, six out of the eight were, uh, were killed, were um, put, uh, you know, just uh, electrocuted. And then two others were serving their time in, in jail. But it's an amazing story. So that really made America a little scary as to what could happen. And so the coastlines, the Coast Guard really stepped it up with their horses and their dogs guarding the coastline. Uh, the story of Judy really impressed me. That was, uh, <laughs> was a shepherd. It was a German pointer, uh, yeah. POW in Japan. And that uh -huh. was a gut-wrenching story. Could you kind of go through that and let our listeners hear what that story was? Yes. Actually, to me, John, I'm glad you brought Judy up because to me, she is the, the heart of the book. Um, a, because I think it was, you know, you kind of relate that she was a female uh, stuck in the POW camps. At least I do. But I have to tell you, I cried for three days after I finished writing her story, only because I had fallen so in love with this dog. And she was a little English pointer in Shanghai. She was in a kennel in Shanghai. And uh, two um, sailors from the um, HMS Gant, uh, Nat uh, wanted a mascot for their ship. And they went to the kennel and they found Judy. 
And um, she was just this delightful dog. The men fell in love with her. So during the, during the war, their ship, um, she, they were attacked. She actually helped find water on this island that the, the, when the people, when the ship was attacked, it was beached on this island that had no water. And she found water for, for the, uh, the whole rest of the crew that were there. And when they went through, they were trying to escape. It's just this harrowing story. And when they were trying to make it to the other side of Sumatra to catch uh, a boat to take everybody to safety, she had to lead them through the jungles of Sumatra on this 100-plus-mile trek. And it was just amazing. And sadly, by the time they got to this town, um, it had been taken over by the Japanese, and she became a POW with the rest of the crew. And the fact that she was able to survive in these camps just showed really her tenacity and spirit and love for her men. But in one of the camps, she befriended a gentleman named Frank Williams, who really cared for her. He shared with her his food, which they had nothing. They had maggoty rice to eat and very little water. But what she did for the men is she would go out and forage the, the forest and the jungles and bring them back snakes and rats and, and food, any kind of food that, they, that she could bring to them to help them survive. And it was her spirit that caused the men to hang on. And their mantra was, if Judy can survive, so can I. And uh, she was shipped around to POW camp to POW camp. But what the wonderful thing was is Frank Williams was afraid that the guards would kill her and eat her because they ate dogs over there. And so he was able to talk to the commander of the POW camp and got her to be an official POW. She was 81A from in Medang, and he got this for her, so she was protected as good as he could protect her, because had the guards killed a POW, that could, that could have been, you know, really bad. But she's the only animal to uh, have an official POW um, number that I'm aware, and she, she, but she survived, and uh, it was amazing, her story. It really was, uh, and Frank had said one time, he said, uh, Every day, I thanked God for Judy. Yes. And, it, you know, other prisoners can help to keep people's spirits up, and some guys became famous in doing so, but there's right. something about dogs uh, yes. being as innocent as they are and, 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 and as loving as they are yes. that can really rescue people's souls. Absol- absolutely right. You know, they had no voice and they had no choice. And so it was up to the men, and it kind of, with her— it took their mind off of their problems and their fears and um, everything with her, and which was, uh, you know, dogs do that. You know, they they take us out of our own selves, and so she she did that. But yeah, I cried for three days after that story, only because she had touched my heart so much. She does survive the war, so I want to tell that to your readers because I don't want them to think that you know these animals you know, died in battle and stuff. Most of them in the book uh, did survive, which is wonderful. But she did survive the war and thrived after it. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. And there's a lot of stories that came out of the British uh, service in World War II as well. Tell us the story about Peter the Scotch Collie. 
He was a, a digging dog. You know, what I mean about that is that um, during the Blitz, so many of, uh, I don't know how London survived during the war, honestly, with the bombings that took place from the Germans um, and, and in the Blitz. Uh, it, it was stunning. You never knew when uh, you were going to be hit. And the destruction and everything was was absolutely amazing to me. And I, I have a whole new love and appreciation for my British friends from doing the research in this book. Because I really had no idea. But Peter would go and he would dig in the rubble and helped save the, uh, you know, the people who had just been attacked. And I think he was the one that would go into a building. Um, he could smell out the fires and uh, the people, even though there was so much smoke and everything, he could find out where the survivors were. And so that was where the rescue uh, efforts knew, um, you know, where to, where to dig. The fun thing with Peter, and I have this wonderful picture in my book, with um, there was a celebration at the end of the war honoring many of these dogs and the queen and king of england were there and so was princess elizabeth so this is when she was i think 17 16 17 and so there's a wonderful picture of queen elizabeth when she was princess petting uh little uh, peter and uh, boy was he a, he was a pretty dog he really was a, a just a beautiful dog and who did he find one day uh, underneath the rubble who was swearing like a sailor <laughs> you know, it's so funny. He because there was a a parrot, I think it was. Um, and you gotta forgive me because you know I, I wrote these and I don't have my my stories down to my fingertips yet. But oh my gosh, he this thing was crying for help and squawking and everything, and he gets down there and it's a parrot, and it was so funny that uh, you know that it was just swearing at him and they were trying to get to him and everything. It 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 was just delightful. Speaking of our winged creatures, I was I was amazed. I knew that they had used uh, carrier pigeons. I did not realize that they had a U.S. Army pigeon service, and yeah. that they had actually been decorated. There was, I think, it was Major John Chauvin, wasn't it, who mm -hmm. said pigeons can win battles. Uh, yes. What inspired that quote? You know, it's it's amazing, John, what these winged warriors did uh, in there, and. Uh, and there's a reason that the Dickin Medal was bestowed upon 32 of them during World War II. Because you don't realize that back then they didn't have the technology that we have today. So the birds so many times were the uh, messenger of, uh, for the troops. And the very fact when they could get their messages through, they um, could, you know, tell the um, units that they needed were in trouble and they needed to be bombed or where they were or, you know, just any of these messages, uh, SOS messages. And so they saved so many lives. And a really good example of that is our wonderful bird. It's the only animal during World War II to receive the Dickin Medal. And that was G.I. Joe. And G.I. Joe was an American pigeon. And the uh, troops had, the British troops had taken over a town in Italy. And what happened was the planes were going to come in and do a bombing raid on the town so the troops could take over, the, the British troops could take over Kolkovecchia. And, but they, the troops were able to get through 
faster and easier than they had expected. So they, but they had no way to call off the bombing mission. All of their the walkie-talkies, none of their uh, lines of communication worked. The only chance they had to be saved was this pigeon, and they strapped a a note on his leg and sent him up. Thankfully, he wasn't shot down because that happens so many times. Or just in the in the heat of battle, he can they can be hit from uh, the shrapnel and stuff and the bombs going off. But G.I. Joe flew 20 miles in 20 minutes, and he stopped the planes on the tarmac ready to take off and to bomb this town of Kokobekia. So he saved the lives of over 100 British um, soldiers just by, by taking that message through. And that happened time and time again with all of these birds, you know, how they could... Um, send the message to uh, of of help or anything like that. It it was just amazing how um, how they how they did. For for our younger listeners, uh, are you aware of the process by which carrier pigeons uh, are able to get to specific destinations to deliver their message? Well, you know, I learned a little bit about it, but why don't you why don't you go ahead and and tell me what you're thinking? Well, I'm and not I- an expert on it, but I believe uh-huh. that they return to their their cage. Uh, yes, that they're they're brought with them from one location, and when someone attaches a message to a small thing that's attached around their neck, uh, mm-hmm. then then they're sent off, and they know by instinct yes, which they, direction to fly to get back to that cage from which they came. Yeah, it's amazing what they can do because, and actually, they're attached either most of the time they're attached either on their the neck or also on their leg. They'll have a capsule on their leg. And they're trained in their loft. They have their home loft, and they're trained once once they're hatched. They they get used to the home loft and everything. And then their handlers um, would take them out um, after a certain couple of weeks and take them to a certain place. And then they would move the loft. Um, they would take them so you know, like maybe a block away or something, and try to get them slowly but surely to get used to the area. Um, where their loft is. But in what's amazing about them is so many times they would have mobile lofts. So it's fascinating to know how this is. I, it's, it's just amazing. And, um, but they, they have this instinct and it's either from where they, you know, get used to the surrounding areas. So when they're flying in, they kind of know where they're going but it's it's really not been decoded how they really can do this because then you throw in elements like fog and rain where they can't see or if they're flying over the sea how do they how do they know you know where to fly it's just a fascinating a fascinating thing that these animals can home now one of the two of the things that i did learn which i thought was quite uh, quite amazing is they they will they will fly back to the loft faster if they think they're going to get food. Um, also, if their jealousy can play a big role in in getting them to fly home, especially the male birds, because pigeons mate for life. And a lot of times, what would happen is when these birds would go on these missions is they would introduce, they would take the male pigeon out and introduce another male into the loft. And he, the, he would get jealous that his, his wife might be attracted to this other little pigeon, and so he would fly back faster to try to get home to, to, get home to the wife. So <laughs> it's 
really quite funny how you know you you start looking into into these uh, things. But homing pigeons have a I think it's a smaller brain than regular pigeons do. And I and I think what I'm happy with is once you read what goes on with these homing pigeons. I don't think you'll ever look at a regular pigeon the same. I don't, you know, I just look at these creatures because you just never know what's what's in somebody, you know, to uh, to do great things. And, and these pigeons are, are just really, really something. <laughs> Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. There are there are literally I think I, I think I'm correct in saying there's at least a hundred different stories of animal sacrifice uh, and the and and courage in this book. So it's yeah, safe for me but, to ask uh, you a few stories specifically. One story I'd love to have you share is the okay. story of Chips, the German Shepherd. Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh, my chips. Yeah, chips chips is the uh, highest decorated dog in American history. Chips actually received the silver star for his heroics. And, um, and he was actually nominated for a distinguished service cross, which next to the Medal of Honor is the highest medal we give um, in the military. So uh, the silver star was the third highest. But Chips was owned by a family, the John... Um, Edward Wren family in Pleasantville, New York. And they donated Chips to the war cause because Chips would chase the postman or chase the garbage man and protected their, uh, the two girls in the family. Uh, the Wren children were, um, was a little boy and two sisters, Nancy and Gail and John. And so, um, but he would chase these, you know, be very protective. So when the call came from Dogs for Defense, they felt that Chips would make a great addition to, you know, to the war cause. And so they donated the Chips. Chips went through the army uh, training and everything. And he was the first dog um, to land in our, our first invasion in, in November of 1942. Chips was the first, uh, in the first wave of uh, when the Americans entered the war in our very first battle in the invasion of uh, North Africa. And it was Operation Torch. It was on November 8, 1942. And he was on the first landing ships into Africa, was North Africa. Casablanca or Algiers? Uh, it was near Casablanca. They were, they were looking for um, 
they were taking over that whole area, and I think it was in Casablanca in that nor the northern part. And so he was in the first landing party, and uh, he was a scout dog, and he was also you know a patrol dog, and he would just make sure you know patrol the area and stuff at night. And that battle went really well. There's not a lot of detail as to what he did during there, but his next really big thing was in January of '43. He was one of the sentry dogs for President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill in the Casablanca Conference. And for 10 days, he guarded both of those men, and uh, General de Gaulle was there, and uh, a couple of other big dignitaries. And what was important about this conference is this is where the Allied commanders decided that unconditional surrender was the only action that they would accept from the Japanese and the Germans. Um, and so Chips was amazingly, he met uh, President Roosevelt, he met Sir Winston Churchill, and uh, so it was just a, a wonderful uh, precursor to uh, what came next, because his day of destiny was July 10, 1943, with the invasion of Sicily. He was part of General Patton's unit. Um, they landed, General Patton landed uh, south of where Chips did, but uh, Chips's unit landed on the beaches of Lakata on Sicily. And when they landed, the troops were being shelled uh, by the Italians uh, as they were starting to land. And there was an Italian pillbox that was firing at them. And so the guys hit the ground, Chips broke free of his handler and charged the pillbox, no matter, just oblivious to all of the gunfire and everything. Charged the pillbox and got the, the guys panicked because they heard gunfire inside the pillbox and they were thinking, that, you know, Chips was shot. But suddenly Chips comes out with the guy, the head gunner at, by the throat, the guy's crawling out of the pillbox and three other of the Italians have their hands in the air surrendering. And Chips had stopped the, this pillbox from slaughtering all the guys that were landed on the uh, thing. He was wounded twice, got uh, had um, in the back. He had a crease in the back. He, nothing went through, but um, he was wounded twice and had powder burns. Later that night, 10 Italians were trying to sneak into camp. And Chips was able to um, smell them and help in the ca uh, capture of these 10 Italian soldiers. So he was just this amazing, amazing dog. And he served out the whole war over there and guarded the German POWs in another place. He was just amazing. Now, the fun thing about Chips is uh, in January of this year, it was the 75th anniversary of the Casablanca Conference. And I had nominated Chips for the PDSA Dickin Medal. And he was honored with it. When he came home from the war, what was really cute is he came home to a huge hero's welcome. Little Johnny Wren was four years old when his war dog came home. And there are some cute stories in the book about John and his war dog, you know, and how he felt about this dog coming home. I, I just absolutely loved it. Little Johnny Wren was four years old when his war dog came home, and little Johnny Wren goes over to England and receives the Dickin Medal for his war dog chips 75 years later. And it was just, 
it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful day for all of us to have this dog honored. That's a wonderful story. I, yeah. I was reading how he had charged that pillbox, and when you think about it, you know, he was able to get into that entrance fast, and once he <laughs> did, those guys feared shooting each other. You bet. Uh, that, that's a good. That's a good point. You know, I never, I never thought of that. Yeah, you're absolutely which right. Is, which is, uh, which is undoubtedly how he survived. I think he did pick up a bullet in his, in his back, and he also burned his muzzle badly yeah. because he dragged, yeah. he dragged uh, one of their guns. He put that out of action. Yes, he sure did. And yes, then he, he sure came. Did. Then that guy fell out of the pillbox with the with that dog attached to his neck. So he was a. <laughs> That was one courageous dog. Kill him. Yeah, he was afraid that he was going to kill him. So, yeah, well, good. Yeah, I, I know. It's, 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 you, you look at these stories and you just, you know, you just see how, um, how heroic these animals really are. I, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing to me. I, I love all of them. So, yeah, the, the stories of the, uh, of the marine dogs on Bougainville yes. and, and on Guadalcanal were just absolutely amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing how how many men's lives they saved uh, just by just in their patrol abilities oh. to get out ahead of them and to sniff out uh, snipers, uh, machine gun nests, the whole deal. Absolutely, the Marines had their own uh, uh, war dog separate from the war dog training, separate from the dogs for defense. They did in the beginning get uh, several dogs from Dogs for Defense, especially for the first Marine War Dog Platoon, which is on was the the first wave of War Dogs for the Marine Corps. And uh, Chips, uh, not excuse me, not Chips, Caesar, Jack, and Thor all had gone through training for the Dogs for Defense, and they ended up being messenger dogs for the Marine Corps. They transferred over to Camp Lejeune. Uh, and the Marine Corps. The Marines at that time used mostly Doberman Pinschers. The Doberman Pinscher Club of America got together with all of their um, groups around the country and people donated these Dobermans for the Marine Corps. There was over 1,300 Dobermans that uh, served in the Marine Corps. And what's wonderful about this, John, is the Marines, they would have a book a personal book for every dog that served in the Marine Corps. And I was able to go to the National Archives, has these books. And you go, and I went through every one in the Marine, uh, first Marine War Dog Platoon, There's there was 25 of them, 24 of them, 21 Dobries and three um, German Shepherds. To see these war dog books and to hold these pieces of history was I, I was just over overwhelmed and each of the handlers would write in what the dog did or you know kept track of his shots or his wounds or how they need to be um, honored or this kind of thing and what heroics they did that day. Caesar was a good example. He was the very first messenger dog that uh, served over in Bougainville, um, wounded through the back. He had actually two shots in him with a sniper's bullet. Didn't think he was going to make it, but he got his message through, um, uh, even with uh, that, because the, the jungles were so thick, the communication lines would be cut very easily by the Japanese, and um, so messenger dogs were very, very critical in Bougainville. Caesar, yeah. the one that bit Eisenhower's hand? No, that was Chips. <laughs> oh, that was Chips. <laughs> yes, oh my God, I forgot about that. Yes, how wonderful. Yeah, Chips nipped Eisenhower's hand. He... Um, 
bent down to pet him and congratulate him, you know, and, and Chips was trained. No, only my handler touches me. And a fun thing about that, John, is the Eisenhower Presidential Library has a wonderful children's educational program centered around Dogs for Defense and Chips because of the very fact that Chips nipped President Eisenhower, General Eisenhower. And I'm going to be at the library on October 23rd doing a wonderful presentation for Chips, of course, but also doing a military working dog um, exhibition for school kids. Is that, that out in Atchison? Or? Uh, it's in Abilene. Abilene, Abilene right. Okay. Abilene, Kansas. And so that should be a lot of fun. But yeah, good old Chips nipped Eisenhower. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic story. Yeah. Well, no one would ever believe it, but how, how did a cat end up on a list of, of World War II heroes. Could you tell us that story? I sure can. And it's so funny because when I tell people about the stories in the book, I said, I got my war dogs, I got my war birds, got my war horses, and I got a war cat, you know? And it's the <laughs> cat that always, you know, makes them say, okay, what did a cat do? But Simon was found on the docks of um, Hong Kong one day and um the the sailor that found him felt that he needed a cat a mascot for a ship to help with the um the rats you know rats would come on the ships and and really kind of uh, affected the food supplies mm -hmm. but simon but simon's story is actually on the little bit on the outside of world war ii but it's a war cat so you got to add him to this it was in 1949 and uh it was uh, on the ship was the Amethyst, HMS Amethyst, British ship that he was going up. The ship was going up the Yangtze River to relieve another ship in a, in a town up the river. When there was the communist um, uh, um, between the, the, the Chinese. Yeah, Ma Mao Zedong was taken over yes. for Chiang Kai-shek, right? So. Exactly, exactly. And so it was this, this time of this battle. And um, uh, Britain, Britain hadn't weighed in on this uh, battle. And so, you know, they felt that they were pretty safe to go up the Yangtze and everything. But boy, were they wrong, because as they're heading up, the ship that Simon was on, he'd become this wonderful little mascot there. The captain loved him on the ship. Simon would actually follow the captain around, you know, uh, on the ship and, and come by, by a whistle, you know. He just loved the captain. He'd curl up in his hat and everything. And so he was beloved by all of these shipmates. But the ship was shelled and had over 50 hits. The captain was killed. 21 other um, sailors were killed. And Simon was badly wounded. Um, they, he was not found for a couple of days. And when they did find him, he, he had... Uh, four pellets removed, four pieces of shrapnel removed from him, very dehydrated. His whiskers were singed. His eyebrows were singed. He was in really bad shape. What happened was when the, the ship was shelled, it beached on the side of the river. And every time it tried to move, it was attacked. And so after a couple of days, the, the rats started to really proliferate on the ship. And because there was no, you know, cat there to, to help. And so he really saved the day by, um, by capturing the, the rats um, once he was well enough to do that. He, he, and the one rat that you may have say tongue was the big rat that <laughs> real problem. And nobody could catch that rat except Simon did, ultimately. But the other really cool thing about Simon is he became the very first therapy cat. And what mm -hmm. he would do is he would, when he was wounded and in sick bay, 
he would go and he would jump up on the bunks of the wounded sailors and purr and knead his paws and just kind of massage them a little bit. And because he was one of them, they they just they felt better. And Simon felt better um, from being with them. And so after 101 days of being stranded, the ship um, made a run for it out of the Yangtze. And thankfully, uh, they were able to escape. And the news hit that they were on the way to Hong Kong. And the story of Simon and his crew, they all became heroes, and especially Simon. And so when the ship landed in Hong Kong, you see little Simon, you know, walking down off the gangplank there <laughs> to, a, to a hero's welcome. So uh, he was just this beautiful little tuxedo cat that, uh, that just, uh, you know, really tears at your heartstrings that he, you know, loved his men and, and did this for, for the ship. Fantastic story. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I, we passed over it kind of quickly, but I think you were the one who recommended the Dickens Medal for Chips. Is that correct? Yes, I did. You I want sure. To tell did. us a little bit about that story and and, yeah. and and how you got inspired and how you got it done. So, when Sergeant Reckless in 2016, Sergeant Reckless, I had nominated um, the horse Sergeant Reckless, Grand War Horse, for the Dickens Medal. She uh, received it in 2016, and so when I started researching these stories. And I really discovered the story of Chips. I thought, boy, oh boy, he sure deserves to do this, to get this medal. And so I pulled up a presentation. And because he had guarded Winston Churchill and Roosevelt um, in the Casablanca conference and worked really closely with, with other British um, units, they loved the story and uh, they thought he would make a great uh, medalist. He became the 20th dog from World War II and the 70th recipient of the medal. And I was so proud that he was uh, able to get it. And it was presented to him posthumously um, on the 75th anniversary of the Casablanca Conference. And so it was January 15th of this year, earlier this year, that he got the, um, got the medal. Well, and thank you. Uh, thank you for doing that. Yeah. Oh, it was my honor and privilege. And don't you know that Randolph Churchill, Churchill's great-grandson, was there for the presentation of this medal. And it was just a great day. Just a great day. Now, Chips had been refused the Silver Star, right? Wasn't he recommended for the, the Silver Star? Yes, he was. Of gallantry? Yes, he was. And actually, he he was recommended for the Distinguished Service Cross. But 
they gave him the silver star instead. And he was actually awarded that medal. He's the only animal to ever receive that medal. I think they pulled it years later, but he, he was awarded it. Okay. Yes, they did. They, um, he was awarded it and they actually pulled it, um, not too much longer afterwards because there was such a, there became a national outcry that a dog was getting, he was recommended for a purple heart because of his wounds. Must've been cat lovers who put up the outcry. <laughs> There you go. I wondered, but yeah. yeah. So sadly, it, it was pulled. But getting the Dickin Medal, um, which is the greatest award an animal can receive for gallantry and bravery in wartime, um, it it helped ease that little pain. And um, so we're very very proud. And that medal is going to be displayed in the um, National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Ooh, very good. Yeah, so very excited about that. Now, one interesting thing in your book, when they started this dog program in World War II, mm -hmm. uh, people were sending all kinds of dogs. <laughs> what What were, <laughs> male, female, I mean, oh, everything from dude. Shih Tzus to, to Dobermans. How, how long did it take them to sort that out, and what, what, what became the main dogs for use? Well, it was breeds. interesting. Yeah, uh, what happened was it started off with like 35 breeds, you know, that they could they could do. But when they started getting the little Shih Tzus and the Terriers and everything like that, they realized they had to start narrowing it down. And um, it was then whittled down to like 18. And actually, Poodles made the one of the cuts down to 18. But as they whittled it down more, it became German Shepherds, Doberman Pinschers, Belgian Malinois, the husky for the sled dogs and uh, that kind of thing. There were some um, Shetland dogs um, uh, that also um, made the cut because those dogs, they, they felt they were the right size, the right temperament. And um, Dobermans eventually were phased out because they're, they were a little bit high strung. Mm -hmm. But now today um, in our military working dog program that goes on, the Belgian Malinois, the German Shepherds, um, they do have labs that also work great, but it's it's really wonderful to think that um, our military working dog program today stemmed from the efforts that were made back in World War II. Hmm. Again, we're we're talking with Robin Hutton, uh, who just recently has the book War Animals out there. So we recommend that uh, you guys look that one up, uh, Amazon or wherever else great books are sold. And I'll let her give all the information when we're done. But we st she doesn't know it, but we've still got a long ways to go before we're done. But I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to get that in as a, as a halfway here. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> okay. Uh, you had just mentioned the Bel Belgian Malinois and the Shepherds. We've done right. a couple episodes on, uh, on war animals or animals that have been involved in the fight against terrorism. Oh, and good. We did one, um, I guess it was about a year ago, called uh, Je suis chien, uh, I, I am dog, about uh, the reaction of the people of Paris, France, to the loss of a great uh, police dog. Uh, oh, wow. I think his name was Diesel, that uh, was lost in action of, of actually cornering terrorists in a building in Paris during a terrorist attack. And uh, all of France became so uh, sad heartbroken that they had lost this dog that a, a hashtag campaign had started called Je suis Chien, just so people could show their love. Oh, wow. Uh, for this Isn't dog's sacrifice. And, yeah. and and you're right. The, the Belgian Malinois are preferred. I think the Navy SEALs use them. 
Uh, and shepherds are preferred, both dogs, fantastically smart and yeah. courageous. Oh, they, they sure are. You know, there's, there's a, a war dog that uh, named Luca. Luca was a, um, I think she was a German Shepherd Malinois mix, and she served in Afghanistan and Iraq, and she went on 400 missions, IED missions over there. And finally, around the 400th one, she stepped on one, and it, it blew off her paw, and she um, lost her leg, you know, at the shoulder. However, Luca also received the Dickin Medal just before Sergeant Reckless did in 2016. And I am, I am now working with the artist who did the three beautiful monuments to Sergeant Reckless. We have three monuments to her at um, the National Museum of the Marine Corps, Camp Pendleton, and Kentucky Horse Park. But now we are doing a monument for Luca at uh, at Camp Pendleton because that's where Luca went. That's where she served, um, was trained, and after she was wounded, um, that's where she went to recover. And it's an amazing story of just as these these animals will blow your mind with their smarts, with their dedication, and with their sacrifice. And I encourage you to tell us a little bit about your book, Sergeant Reckless. And I'm going to preface that by saying we did an episode and and. I'm not sure if he is a whaler, but we did an episode about the whaler horses of Australia and their oh. courage and their courage in World War One, and in the sad story of how the the men, the men who rode them, had to put them down uh, uh. at the end of World War One before they were allowed to return to Australia because they have very strict laws about yeah. bringing animals out into other regions and then bringing them back uh, because yeah. Australia is a is an isolated island. Yeah. And to bring in uh, strange bacteria, things like that, they're very, very cautious about that. So they were ordered to put thousands of these whaler horses down. But the, the whalers earned a reputation as being some of the greatest war horses ever. Uh, really? They were used oh, by Merrill's so. Marauders, I know, in World War II. So uh, they, were, they were quite loved uh, by the Australians and British. But I wanted you to tell us a little bit about Sergeant Reckless and that story. Yes, well, Sergeant Reckless for me is where it all began. And Sergeant Reckless was this Mongolian horse over in Korea. Um, she she was just a little pony. She was only about thirteen hands high, and she was owned by a Korean man who wanted to, who bred her to be a racehorse. And um, but when the war broke out in 1950, Reckless was only two years old, and so she became a cart horse instead. But he always had a vision of her after the war to be a racehorse. So uh, during one battle in '52, a lieutenant Eric Pedersen had just taken over command for the anti-tank division, the recoilless rifle. And this this one gun, the recoilless rifle, each round weighed 24 pounds. They're in these huge canisters. And the men would have to carry these up to the guns. And, you know, a man could only carry two, maybe three of these on his back with all of his other gear. He's packing 100 and plus pounds, you know. And so it just exhausted the men uh, to carry this ammunition. So Eric Pedersen got permission to go to the Seoul racetrack and look for a pack animal. Didn't care if it was a mule, a you know, donkey, a horse, whatever. And he found this wonderful little horse. And he brought it back to camp, and they named her Reckless. Um, it was a contraction of the recoilless rifle. It was called a Reckless rifle 
because you had to be a little reckless to be associated with it. Um, it had a back blast that, that showed the enemy where you were firing. So they only fired maybe four times in one spot, picked up the gun and ran to another part of the hill. So it, it was a crazy, just really a dangerous weapon to be associated with. So she got the name Reckless and the men put her through Hoof Camp, which was the Marine, the equine version of boot camp. And they taught her how to step over communication lines, get down when there was incoming fire, get in and out of her tent, uh, excuse me, in and out of her um, bunker and, uh, and the trailer that she was carrying, uh, the you know, when they, they'd transport her around. And she would carry this ammunition up to the guns um, during the Korean War. And um, in one battle, she made um, 51 trips up to the guns most of the time by herself. This was the Battle of Outpost Vegas in March of 53, which at that time, it was said to be one of the most fierce battles the Marine Corps had, had been through. And if you look at Bella Wood and you look at all of these, um, uh, uh, Iwo Jima, you just see at that time, there was so much incoming and outgoing firepower that the rounds were colliding in midair and raining down on the troops. The rounds were coming in at 500 rounds a minute. Men were getting hit with shrapnel and everything. It was so chaotic. But Reckless was so great that they would strap this ammo up on her back. She would carry eight to ten of these on average, uh, which was over 200, 200 pounds on her back. She, they would give her a slap on her rump and up the hill she would go. Now, she, they, she was led a couple of times so she knew where to go. Um, it wasn't magic, but she would do this by herself, and she did that 51 times up steep hills through open rice paddies. Um, she um, would be, they would take the ammo off of her, give her a slap on the rump again, and down the hill she went to get reloaded. And this went into the night, and um, she was wounded twice, got hit in the forehead and in her left flank, um, but she never stopped. The Marines had become her herd, and so she would follow them anywhere, you know, and was just this amazing, amazing horse. She even carried wounded off the battlefield. And so at the end of the day, she had carried 386 rounds up to the guns, which was over 9,000 pounds of ammunition on her back. And it was just amazing. And this battle broke the spine of the enemy because uh, this was in March by July the um, the arm the armistice had been uh, set and the ceasefire had taken place. That was the turning point, really, of the war. Was this battle, and you know, Reckless was in the middle of it. But the wonderful thing about Reckless was she was an amazing character. She would drink beer with the guys. She would sleep in their tents. She would. Um, uh, uh, eat in the mess tent with them. She loved bacon and eggs, and she would drink coffee, and she would even drink Coca-Cola, and uh, loved her Hershey bars. I mean, she was one of the guys. And I think because she was female, it became a wonderful little love story with she and her men. Um, they, they would do anything for her, and as I said, they were her herd, and she would follow them anywhere. So after the war... It took a while, but uh, the men were finally able to get her home. Uh, an article appeared in the Saturday Evening Post in April of 54 when all of her men had since, you know, gone home. 
And the last two paragraphs said that she was stranded on the hills of Korea by, you know, with, you know, by herself, essentially. And there was a national outcry to bring her home. And so the gentleman, uh, Lieutenant Andrew Gear, who wrote that article, put up $1,200 of his own money. Uh, a shipping line donated free shipping if they could get her to Japan. So she was shipped home. She landed, she touched American soil on November 10th, 1954, which was the Marine Corps birthday in San Francisco. And she was the guest of honor of the Marine Corps birthday ball there at the Marine Corps Memorial Club. And she waltzes through the hotel of this, of the Marines Memorial Club, sashays into the elevator. They take her up to the, the, the top floor where the, the, the birthday party was. And she waltzes into the banquet room. And, and it was said that the, the flashbulbs were going off like mortar shells. Everybody was just snapping her picture. And she spies the anniversary cake, and she's up to her nostrils in it before they could get a hold of her. She's so used to being hand-fed. Exactly. Couldn't resist it. She couldn't. And so she's she actually lived out her days at Camp Pendleton. She is the only animal to hold an official ranking in any branch of the military. And she was actually a staff sergeant. The Commandant of the Marine Corps promoted her to Staff Sergeant at Camp Pendleton. And uh, she uh, lived out her days and is buried there. Mm. So it's just a great, great story. Well, your, your stories in War Animals are fabulous. I absolutely love them. And there are so many we didn't cover yet today. Oh, no. So I'm, I'm, no. I, I'd like you to tell our listeners how they get a hold of your, your books and, uh, and what you've got coming out next. <laughs> Good question. Um, so you can go to my my website. I have for Sergeant Reckless. You can go to sergeantreckless.com and learn all about Sergeant Reckless. Is that SGT Reckless? S-G-T-R-E-C-K-L-E-S-S.com. And uh, I have a store on there that has all of my books and have other paraphernalia and memorabilia for, of Reckless on there. And I'll do the same for these other war animals. I just set up waranimals.com for the my new book and uh, so they can go to waranimals.com and uh, learn all about uh, all about the book and uh, you can get the book on amazon barnes and noble uh, books a million any of the places where you usually like to go and uh, you know, shop for your books. You, it, it, it will be available. It's. I'm just very, very proud. Very, very proud of this book. And I'll, I'll tell you a fun thing that I'm doing, John, because of these stories, and the inspiration that these animals have done for me is, I had wanted to do when I started doing the Sergeant Reckless monuments to do a war animal monument like they have over in Great Britain honoring these great heroes. Because to me, these animals are ambassadors for all of the men and women that served. And in learning the stories of these animals, you learn of the sacrifice of their human handlers and compatriots, you know. Um, you learn about pieces of history that you might not be taught in school. And so it's, it's wonderful that what these animals do. So I was going to do a monument, um, kind of a sculpture garden monument for all of these animals to show our appreciation and uh, have people go and show their respects. But it's kind of morphed into something bigger. I am now doing an International War Animals Museum. 
and really hope to get this placed in Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia, Maryland, that whole area of Washington, D.C., the mecca of museums. Yeah, and be a place where people can go and learn all about these stories and see these. You know, I could only get 156 pictures in my book, but I have hundreds and hundreds of pictures. And so to be able to have these pictures available for people and to be a place where kids can go and learn and uh, um, on the website wareanimals.com, I do have a preliminary page set up for the museum as I start to build it. But there's nothing like it anywhere in the world. And I think we need to honor these great four-legged and winged heroes uh, in a way they sure deserve. I, I agree. And thank you for what you're doing. I think that's wonderful. I wish you every you. bit of, of luck and good fortune in getting that museum together. Yeah, uh, thank you. I'm excited. And I know a lot of our listeners, well, we're international, but I know a lot of our listeners do hail from the East Coast, and I'm sure they're going to want to visit that museum when it opens. Great. Great, great, great. Well, yes, they, we'll keep putting people updates and everything on, on our website and stuff. Well, Robin Hutton, thank you so much for, for guesting here at 1001 Heroes podcast uh, and for your books, War Animals, and for Sergeant Reckless. And Thanks. I wish you all the good luck in the future, and hopefully we'll be talking to you a year from now about all your projects. Please, I would love it. It's been an honor, so much fun. This is my very first uh, talk on, on these uh, animals, so now I, I kind of know where to go with some of my, uh, to make sure I got the stories down a little bit tighter. So. Well, you're going to be doing you're going to be doing a lot of talks, and I'm sure a lot of book signings uh, yes. until the point where your, your arm is worn out. So we're glad we could get to you first, (laughs) and we're very we're very proud to have had you on. I know I know this episode is going to be enjoyed by a lot of people. Thank you, John. It's my honor and privilege, and God bless you for all that you do honoring these great great heroes. Thank you, Robin. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause, and Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.